seated. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 20. Verse 24 in particular, I mentioned last week as we covered that entire section, the introduction to Paul's exhortation to the leaders of the Ephesian church, that church that he loved so much because he spent so much time there, almost three years. That's a a large portion of time for a missionary apostle like him. So he loved the congregation there. Um, He called outside of Ephesus, he called for the Ephesian elders to come out so that he could address them and encourage them in their ongoing ministry after he was gone. He was pretty convinced that he would go on to probably die or not return to Ephesus. He would keep going until the Lord's course for him was over. So he wanted to say some special words to the Ephesian leaders. And we are in the first introductory comments where he emphasizes the specific mission that he has to proclaim Christ. And you remember um, these opening verses of his exhortation to the elders, several different ways he says the same thing. He is about preaching Christ to them, making known the grace of God in Christ to them. Um, He is singular in focus on his mission. And we come to verse 24 of Acts 20, and I want to pause there this week as a bit of an excursus to explore the theme just a little more. He says something very profound in verse 24. Now, he's an apostle, so the specific call to the apostle may not be identical to how each individual believer lives out their life, but it's in connection with the great commission Jesus gives the whole of the church. And the apostolic ministry is what we look to to see how the ministry of the local church carries out. And as individuals, we're part of the local church, and so there are ways in which we follow God's call or the mission he has given. We'll look at Paul and how he moves through his life, growing in his understanding of his mission. It's so singular and so careful and so pointed. This is a good reminder for us because things become very distracted easily. So let's just look at verse 24 as I read, and then we'll plumb the depths of some other passages that are on the insert that you'll need to have before you. This is God's holy word. Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, please give us aid by your spirit to understand your word. Please impress your truth upon our hearts and minds. Where we might become distracted, please give us focus. Where we might be confused, please give us clarity. Where we might miss the main point, please make it plain. Lord Jesus, we have received your commission to make disciples. Please grant that we would stay on mission by your grace, by your empowerment. It's your mission. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In life, focus can be everything. Without focus, we can become distracted very easily. We can become overwhelmed by all the things happening around us. Um, Without focus, we can become disoriented. We don't even know where we are in life. We can become confused and even misdirected altogether. You know, we're always functioning out of mission. There's something driving us. There's some goal we're going after. There's something we think is important, and that shapes the decisions we make and the actions we take. Unavoidable. 
So focus on the right thing is paramount. Um, You don't have to be too familiar with sports uh, to recognize that virtually any sport has some feature where you have to focus on something singularly. I'm thinking about when a baseball or a softball is hit and it's in the air, you have to keep your eye on the ball no matter where your feet are going. You've got to get to the ball and keep your eye on the ball. Lots of things have to happen, but that's the main thing first. You have to have your eye on the ball. To hit a golf ball, which is not easy, you're supposed to, at least at the basic level, make sure you're looking at the ball with your head over the ball and you're not moving it. Now, there are a ton of mechanics to hitting a ball besides that, but you have to start there. The focus has to be there or nothing else will work. You know, when we think of mission statements and we think of organizations and the need for an organization to have a clear, simple focus, that's really what it is. It's a a purpose statement. It it has values inlaid, but it's, it's a singular focus about what we are about. And organizations have this across the board. Schools have mission statements. Um, Corporations have mission statements. Churches certainly have a mission statement. We have one that's listed on your bulletin every week. I hope you recognize it and see it. It's to drive us to a single point or to a narrow view so that we can sift out everything else and recognize what is most important. Mission statements have an important part to play in our life and in our walk. Paul had a mission statement. It was to make Christ known. We see this in verse 24 of Acts 20. Uh, There are several times along the way, though, Paul will speak to an audience, usually by letter. That's the way we have it in Scripture. Epistles he writes to churches he helped to plant. He gives a specific, very uh, singular focus in a statement. And it seems to be the thing that drives everything he does. His mission, his view of what God has called him to, is read into everything else. For all the things he could choose to do and help, imagine all the abilities Paul has, all the problems he could have solved. He is really simplistic about where his focus lay. The mission statement that he so clearly outlines is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's to testify to Christ, as we have seen. But this passage that we're reading in Acts 20 that we've arrived to in the exposition of the book of Acts, it's not the first time he's said this kind of thing in the company of God's people. In fact, I would like you to look at the insert and follow with me chronologically. Now, the reason why I have placed these verses is to display the simplicity and the singular focus of Paul throughout his life and ministry, but also notice how the activity of his mission uh, expands a bit in his descriptions with each passing year, and he explains to a new audience what God has called him to. It's still the same mission, but notice how it grows in its impact, in its deepness. It helps us see him stay on mission, but then practice it in the way that God has called him to. Now, the dates I have uh, assessed or assigned to these different passages, um, they're not exact, exact because we don't know a give or take a year. The book of Acts, we're all but certain he was in Ephesus in 57 AD when he wrote the passage or when he said what Paul or Luke records in the passage I read. The other passages, though, we know are in this chronological order, even if the date's not identical. Early in his walk, uh, or in his apostolic writing ministry, he wrote Galatians. Look at Galatians 2.20, and remember, he's writing this about a year before he makes the statement I read earlier. So this is Galatians 2.20, writing to the Galatian church, the church he visited on his first journey, and he says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. You see where the singular focus of Paul comes from. But Christ, 
who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the reason he follows Christ's commission. Jesus gave him eternal life that started from the moment he born Paul again, and it will go on to eternity. And with that kind of gift from Christ, his life is hidden in Christ. His life is united to Christ. It now takes on a mission connected to Christ. That's true of not just an apostle, that's true of every believer. That's in 56 AD. A year later, he's with the Ephesian elders, and he says the next passage, which we've already seen. I don't account my life of any value or precious to myself. If only, this is his singular focus, his mission, if only I could finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord, what is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to testify to Christ. His mission's the same. A year later, more, much ministry under his belt. A year later, he says the same thing. Four years after that, he's writing to the Philippian church, another church that he visited in one of his missionary journeys. Notice his focus four years later. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, the, the riches and the rewards of Christ himself in fullness. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is still, still his mission. To know Christ more is part of his mission. To proclaim Christ to others is a driving feature of the mission. He's staying on mission even four years later in all that he has undergone. A year after he writes to the Philippians, he writes to the Colossian church. And here he is now reflecting upon several years of, of ministry now in several different churches uh, among hundreds of people, probably thousands of people. And he makes this statement to the Colossians. Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now we see him still on mission many years later from the time he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He's on mission to proclaim Christ and to see other people know who Christ is, to see those people grow in Christ and for those people to make Christ known. That's the apostolic mission. That's the simplicity of it, it's the power of it, it's the focus of it, and he is staying on this mission as an example to the church for every generation after. Paul said, I follow Christ. Now follow me as I follow Christ. And Christ commissioned the church to proclaim him. And Paul followed that and exemplified that. And through Paul's example, we can gather a few timeless truths that will help bolster our mission. I don't just mean the church's mission. I mean every member of the church, every believer who's called to Christ will have a purpose in their life that is now directed through this mission to make him known. Recently, I decided I would not pay to have my deck restained. I'm going to do it, which is always the beginning of a bad story to come later. We haven't got to that story yet because I'm still getting there. As with many projects. But I decided to go to Amazon and buy myself one of those paint sprayers. I've seen the professionals use the sprayers. So what if I only get one use out of this thing? If I just get the deck, pay for this thing on Amazon for like 70 bucks, that's a lot cheaper than paying someone to paint it. It would be a lot easier than me doing the Tom Sawyer job that I did every other time I painted something. So I'm reading the directions and talking to people who know what they're doing. And they say to me, don't forget 
to filter the paint. I'm like, filter the paint? I mean, I, I, I'm going to buy a five-gallon bucket of paint. It's, it's fine. Just put it on, right? No. You have to put it through a small little filter that's very fine screen on it before you put it into the little tank that hooks on to your electric, sp- electric sprayer. And so you get the five-gallon bucket that's big and tons of paint in, and you narrow it in through the filter, and then it goes into a smaller container that you then use so that it doesn't clog up with air or debris or anything like it, and the paint's thinned out if it's got some thick spots, and now it goes on smoothly. It can be pointed. It does its job. Think of a mission statement as all the activities in your life in the five-gallon bucket, but you sift to to discover what you should do, what you should actually focus on, what will actually work in line with the mission, you pour that bucket of activities in life through the filter, and then it thins it out, and it narrows it down, and then you have a smaller container to work with, and it's more focused, it's clearer. That's what mission does for you. As we think of life's activities for families, for individuals, for our church, so many things could be done. It could become distracting. But when we know our mission... That works to filter out things that don't relate to our mission. It sifts things out and allows us to be better at what God does call us to so that we're not distracted or disoriented or confused or even misled to follow a different mission. Remember, we're all following a mission, something that's valuable to us, that we think is purposeful. The question is, what is it? And Paul serves to describe for us singularity of thought about mission, staying on mission and its importance for the short life we live. And we'll see at the end of Paul's life how this works out. That's the beauty of the New Testament, among other things. We can watch the whole process work out in his life as we estimate what it would look, out, look like in the life of our church, in the life of the members of our church. Let's go to these passages that are there on your handout and notice a bit of a progression of thought that flows from these verses and what they reveal. Very fundamentally and very foundationally, we start with this principle that Paul exemplifies in Galatians, 9, Galatians 2, verse 20. Because Jesus is his Savior, it makes total sense that he is also his Lord, meaning his master or the one who directs his life. It makes sense, right? I mean, we could say that he's our Savior and our Lord, but if you thought about what it means, really, because he saved us, he absolutely should be our Lord. Because he saves us, I'm happy that he's my master. He's a loving master. It's a good thing. It's not a begrudging thing. I almost want to say, come see what the world cannot give in its mastery and follow the true master. But you can only follow him once you have been freed from your sin and the deserts that you have for your sin in him. Now he becomes your Lord. And that's really what we see in the life of Paul. You remember when he met Jesus for the first time on the road to Damascus. He was filled with hate, filled with murderous threats and thoughts. He wanted to destroy the church. Um, he hated God. Um, he was at enmity with God in, in the most expressive possible ways. And then Jesus meets him and says, why are you persecuting me? I want you to go tell about me instead. And he's saved. He realizes his salvation, but he's blinded for a time. And then this poor guy, Ananias, has to go tell Paul Um, remind Paul of the mission that he has. Uh, And listen to what happens. The the result of his knowing Christ as Savior, what does it accomplish in his life? In Acts 9, the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. 
And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fall from his eyes. Connects exactly with that second hymn we sang. And he regained his sight. When he rose, he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, you remember now, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. He's my Savior, therefore he's my Lord. And he directs my path. So, when we come to Galatians 2.20, he can say, I've been crucified with Christ. My life is no longer mine. He has purchased it. He has redeemed it. He has bought me with the price of his own blood. It is no longer I who live, he says to the Galatians and to us, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, talk about purpose. The life I'm living, the purpose of it, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's my Lord. Why is he my Lord? He loved me and gave himself for me. That's the starting point for our mission as a church, as Christians. This is the starting point of the mission for every believer. We see it here in the life of Paul. When our lives are tinted with a thankfulness to Christ for giving us eternal life, everything we see is seen through the lens of God's gracious hand. Everything. Uh, There's no such thing as the the things that are unspiritual in our life. Everything comes from the hand of God, and we recognize God's grace through Christ in those things. It it changes completely the complexion of things and the purpose for our life, what we're striving after in an ultimate sense. It's actually a liberating feeling to have Jesus as Lord rather than our flesh as Lord. Our flesh always leads us in a bad way, and it, it never finally is satiated. It always struggles with contentment. But with Jesus as Lord, we can now begin to see the purpose of it all, maybe not to the specifics exactly, but in the general sense that God's called us to something more. Something is always mastering us. Before Christ, it was our flesh. Now in Christ, it's him by the Holy Spirit. This isn't a begrudging thing at all. It's a glorious thing. A second truth that flows from the first that we see exemplified in these passages and just thinking of the life of Paul as we know it. A second truth revealed in the example of Paul staying on mission is how the priority of Jesus then becomes his priority. Um, Yes, he's my Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does the Lord want? What is important to the Lord, to my Lord? So he starts to Slowly but surely, remember there's several years before he actually went out and started preaching publicly, but slowly but surely his, his priorities became aligned with the Lord's priorities and that began to drive him. That's what helped him stay on mission. He knew that it was the Lord who dictated what he should be about as a person. In his case, he was called to be an apostle, to be a world evangelist, to do the things he did. In your case, in my case, it's going to be smaller or more narrow. Maybe some of you will be something big like that. Whatever it is, it's unique to you. But it's seen through the priorities of God. How I raise my children is in line with the priorities of God. At least that's what we strive for. How I view my vocation has to do with the priorities of the Lord. Um, How uh, I raise my children or how I pursue hobbies or relationships or you name it. The priorities of God are the first thing we, how we spend our money. Like what, is it really our money? And our talents, how do we, use our talents? Where do we serve? All of these things are completely organized and directed by the priorities of God as we think of what his priorities are. That's what we do 
in relationship to our Lord and Master. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says something very profound about his life. It's not to say that life isn't valuable, but look closely at what he's saying. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. In other words, his life is something to give somewhere. It's not something for me to keep. What he wants is for it to be poured out for God's priorities. If only I may finish my course, that course specific to him, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. As Paul grew in his walk, his mission crystallized. And you could see that through those passages that we looked at. He becomes very focused on living for Christ and sharing Christ with others and seeing others grow in Christ. Jesus' priorities become his priorities. He saw his life His life's value is wrapped up in what Christ called him to do. You know, individual Christians uh, have to be pursuing a life that is in line with the priorities the Lord has given for you. There is Christ's great commission to make disciples of all nations, which we come together to engage upon. And then there's the specific ways you are specially gifted to live out those talents and abilities and things that you have to offer in line with with God's priorities. I promise you that if you are discontent or you're struggling in life, some of it's connected to how you view the things you're called to do in relationship to the priorities of God. If you're God's child, then you're united to Christ by faith. You will sense conviction when you're striving after something that's driven by your flesh or by your own mastery or the mastery of other people. But it's completely different when it's done in line with the priorities God's called us to. And you can't always tell when two people are doing something, it might be the same thing, but it can be completely different in how it's executed and what impact it has based on what priorities are being followed. Christ's priority, simply, preach the gospel to all nations. And every believer pays, plays a role in this. And we know that it goes, it's deeper than just pronouncing something. It's coming to know Christ and then, and then studying the glories of Christ in all of our life through the lens of his word. We give testimony to the gospel by the priorities that we keep, for sure. You know, I've been thinking lately, and speaking about this a lot as I've had opportunity, as I've grown older in the ministry here especially, I find that I've gotten less, uh, less complicated, actually more singularly focused. Uh, my I find myself more and more driven by the gospel of Christ is the most important thing I could, could be of service to you concerning. Now, I, I don't mean to preach an evangelistic message every week so much as I mean the more we focus back on what Christ has done for us in his work, the more that will actually help you in the everyday things you deal with. If I tried to constantly address every topical issue that we could be facing, as many as the people are here, there are that many issues. And I would never even do a great job because your specific experience is different from the person sitting next to you. They may be in the same general category, but you are unique and your situation is unique. And you feel that. You, you wonder, does anyone else feel what I feel or go, are they going through what I'm going through? So the best thing that I could do for your, you pastorally is to remind you once again of the truth of the gospel and the depth of it and who Christ is and why he is worthy of our worship and our trust as you, are, you grow in that, that will anchor you in a way to deal with the unique issue you're facing. And we need that on a regular basis. Now, I'm not saying there aren't specific applications. We do that in each other's life. I'm just thinking on the macro level, as I'm 
think of the mission God's given me is to make sure that you're strong and you're clear on the gospel of God's grace. And that is to some degree true of all of us to be expressing in the spheres of influence we have. And I see it in Paul's life and it's impressed me again to be focused. There are only so many years we have on this earth. And in my particular mission, that's what I want it to be about. How does this service promote the person and work of Christ? How does this relationship that I have or you have, how does it promote the person and the work of Christ? How does this trial that I'm going through drive me or others towards the person and work of Christ once again? How should this new endeavor that we might undertake or this new job you might have or this place you may name it, whatever the change that's coming is, how will this point to Christ in the end, whatever is going to happen? I think of the mission of our church to mature as a community of believers. That's a family of fellow redeemed sinners, by the way, who love to worship their God because he's given us a heart towards worshiping him. We recognize he is the mighty one who saved us. To mature as a community of Christians who love to worship and we know how to worship by digging deeper into his word and knowing Christ more, so we study his word at every chance we get. And we don't stop there, though. We want others to know when we proclaim it to the world. It's a simple mission. I think it comes out of the apostolic mission, which comes from Christ's commission. The priority of Jesus on earth was to point people to himself. You know, I was thinking of an example from the Old Testament that would really help here. And the one that comes to me is uh, the story of the Israelites who were living completely in disarray and disorientation because they had lost their focus on what God had called them to be. He called them out to be a a shining light to the nations. That was his calling upon them. He did so in a miraculous way. He splits the Red Sea and he frees them from the most powerful nation on earth and even wrecks the army of that nation. It's an incredible sight, but yet it's not that long after and they're complaining against God. They're complaining that God took them out of slavery. They've forgotten the grace of God to them. And we all can recognize this. And the Israelites become stiff-necked and they complain against Moses. And listen to what is said in Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So what does God do in their state of hating grace? He sends fiery serpents. He sends a trial to make them have to depend once again upon him. It says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, it worked, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Well, I think this episode was designed by God to point the people to their only hope for salvation, the provision of God. And many years later, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in that famous story we're all familiar with in John 3.16, the verses that precede it, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about himself to Nicodemus. Whoever believes in him, he's talking about himself, may have eternal life. You're all going to die. You're dead spiritually, he's saying. But if you look to the Son of Man who's lifted like the serpent on the pole, you will will live. If you look, you'll live. If you believe, you'll live. That's what he's saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. 
Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The priority of Christ is that message. The priority of Christ is to display himself. So the priority of Paul is to lift up Christ. The priority of the church is to lift up Christ. The priority of every believer is to exalt Christ in their life. This is what he calls us to. In every activity that we are called by God to do, and there are hundreds of them, still with the knowledge of the priority that Christ has. This is why Paul says, I don't account my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Do you know that King David said the exact same thing as Paul? Just looking ahead to the grace of God that would be accomplished. In Psalm 63, listen to what King David says and how it relates to what we just studied in verse 24 of Acts 20. David says, your steadfast love, which is the the Hebrew word that we translate to grace, hesed. Your steadfast love, grace, same thing in the language. Your steadfast love is better than life. Isn't that what Paul said? Your grace is better than life itself. My lips will praise you, David says. That's exactly what Paul's saying. I don't account my life as any value precious to myself. I just want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my course. That's the priority God has for us in a collective and individual way. So maybe you're facing a crisis or a trial that makes you feel helpless. Maybe you're facing a difficult decision. Maybe you're feeling that life is moving too fast, disarray, disoriented, maybe misled. The simplicity of Christ's salvation is what you need to hear again. And it's what those who you need want to help, that's what they need to hear again. And we start there for the answer. Paul's life is an honest depiction of the Christian life that's so dependent upon Christ at every moment, at every juncture. And that leads to this final observation I would like you to see. It's reality about what this Christian life will mean. We see in Paul that the Christian life is filled with challenges. Uh, Challenges will be ongoing. And they require these challenges, constant dependence or redependence upon him. This never ends in the Christian life. Now, you might say, well, who wants to become a Christian if that's the way life is? It's a strain and it's a struggle. Pause, though. Human life is troubling. It's difficult to be a human being. You might think someone who doesn't know Christ is unencumbered by conviction, and they just go about their life freely and just enjoy every bit of it. Now, maybe some people on earth experience it, but you know and I know that life is so short and they face judgment. But most people, I would submit, are just simply running from those feelings or that sense of trouble that this fallen world brings. So don't think that because we struggle as Christians that that's unique to us. Humankind struggles. That's what it's like living on this side of the fall in this side of glory. We just have the means to bear up under it and understand it and actually grow through it. That's the beauty of the gospel's application in our trials. You get a bit of the strain exemplified in Philippians 3 that's there on the insert. He's saying, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, I've not become perfected in any way because I know Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, did you notice the language? He's straining forward. So there's resistance here. It's not simple. It's not easy what he's going to do in his mission. It's tough. 
I press on, verse 14. Some, someone's pushing against. I get that, you know, as football season starts again, I see these massive linemen pushing against each other, and they're just pressing each other. It's a battle of strength and, and all that goes into that battle. And I press on. Just imagine pressing on against someone's bigger and stronger than you. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful metaphor for the Christian life. It's a strain. It's a struggle. If you're struggling, if you're having difficulty because you know the priorities of Christ say this and your life's struggling against that, that's normal. That's totally what it's going to be like in this life. And it's in that struggle that we come to have to depend more and more upon the grace of Christ to win the struggle, to get through the struggle. And when we get knocked down in the struggle, the Lord does not forsake us. He lifts us up. He holds it. That's the life we're living now as we move on towards the prize. And the prize is when we see our Lord face to face, the one who has purchased our life, given us purpose in life, helped us to press up against those strains and those struggles. And then we see him face to face and can celebrate that for eternity. Celebrate what? What he's done. How he's done it through us. That's the singular focus of mission in Paul, working its way out in everything that he does and everything he, everything he acts upon. And it brings us to Colossians 1. This is the passage where he's summarizing his effort in ministry with the people God's called him to. I want you to see how he describes this effort. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he's going about a very serious effort to have people know Jesus and grow in Jesus, to be mature in Christ. Is that going to be easy? Parents, will that be easy to help your children grow in knowing Christ? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. And this is what Paul means when he says in verse 29, for this, what? To have people grow in Christ. For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Do you see the change that happens in the verse? I'm toiling, I'm struggling, I'm straining to see people grow in Christ. But he can't do it. There's a bit of a confession. I toil struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. It's this theme that comes out in Paul so often. He recognizes even in the carrying out of the mission he's given us, we're too weak for it. I love one of the confessions of sin we have where it says all the things that God's called us to and says, but we cannot do this. It's too much for us. But, oh Lord, it's not because it's his energy working in us to help see it accomplished. That's his ordained way to grow people in Christ is through weaklings being vessels of God's strength. By our weakness, his strength is perfected. And this is the picture, the true picture we get of what the Christian life is about. You know, one of the false teachings of the American Christian church that will go down in church history is somewhat unique. There's not a lot of unique things. I've studied a lot of church history, but very unique to church history and the scope that we have it in America is this thing called the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It's terrible news, actually. But the idea is that being a Christian means that you will be, if you really believe in Jesus, that you will experience health and wealth, that these things will come together. That will be part, that's how you even know you're a Christian, some false teachers will say. On this idea that, that even in that light, if you would just give more to the ministry of the church that teaches this message, you'll be rewarded even more with health and wealth. The Bible says nothing about that. In fact, it tells you the opposite. Um, nobody's going to experience ultimate health or wealth. And if you do experience a, a good amount of it in this life, it's a short experience. You better not be living for that. Uh, what we have on display in Paul is that 
That doesn't matter because our life's worth is wrapped up in carrying out the mission Christ has given us. That's where we'll sense the true satisfaction that comes from living the way he's called us to. And that's what you'll have as celebration for eternity is the glory of his grace shed and shown through us. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, toiling and struggling in this. Finally, I want you to notice one other passage that's not on your list, but I want to remind you of the dating, because I think the dating is interesting. It wouldn't matter what year these passages came. They stand on their own. But I think in our study of Acts, recognizing when Paul wrote them, the Lord in inspiration does use the individual author's experience. The Spirit of God guides that author to pen his will, but he uses the author's personality and experiences when he's doing it. So it is at least interesting to note uh, the progress or the development of Paul's thoughts in the passages that I noted. The first one in 57 AD, or excuse me, 56 AD, Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. One year later, in the book of Acts, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord. Four years later, to the Philippians, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. One year later, to the Colossians, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, at the end of Paul's life, 67 AD, some five years after the last passage I have on the insert, five years later, he's awaiting no doubt execution. It seems that way. Most scholars believe it. We don't know for sure, but he's writing to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy from prison. It seems like he's about to die. He recognizes it. He uses an image of a a drink offering. That's where you take a drink. Instead of drinking it when you're thirsty, you would pour it out um, on an altar to show my, I believe that my life is forfeited. I needed this drink, but I believe that God will provide, so I pour it out. And so he writes to Timothy at the end of his life, and here's the test I mentioned at the beginning all this talk about mission and the purpose and how it gives you direction. And now he comes to the end of his life and notice what he says to Timothy. Timothy, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which was entrusted to me. The gospel. Follow the pattern, Timothy, of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's a good deposit? It's the deposit of the gospel. It's the mission of the church. Guard that with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Then he says these final words, and this is what I conclude with. This is a sum total of Paul's assessment of the following of his mission. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be careful to read what Paul says. He's not saying, I've been so obedient, I've done all my job, I've fi- now God will reward me. That's not what he's saying. Remember what's key to him. I am crucified with Christ. I finished believing in Jesus. I have ended my days and I trust in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I will receive this reward. And anyone who keeps that faith, who has faith in Christ, who dies in Christ, they will receive that reward too. And you will love his appearing. You'll love his appearing because you won't be in shame. Your sin has been removed. And he will come 
in full righteousness, the one who has made you righteous. No one will come to the end of their life following that mission and regret it. Nobody. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the many ways in which you reveal yourself, but most importantly in your word. Please give us aid in applying your word. As we think of our individual lives and how they can be so quickly disoriented and distracted, please give us a renewed sense about the centrality of Jesus in our lives. May this be a time to pause and be wonderfully comforted by the grace of Christ and what is most important in this life. Lord, as we think of the mission of our church in which we belong, please grow us as a community of, of gratefully redeemed sinners who love to meet you in worship, to study and meditate upon your precious word, and to share your glorious gospel of grace through Christ to everyone. I pray this because of Christ, through Christ, and in Christ. Amen. Let us together respond by singing one of these great hymns of the faith that ask for God's guidance. 598, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Let's stand. We'll sing verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table.